Hello and welcome to Connected, the business post-technology podcast brought in association with Dell Technologies Ireland. I'm Matt Ryan and it is our last show of 2020. I have got three wonderful guests for us to go over what we've decided, including myself, are the big topics of 2020 to discuss. And it's going to be a fun one, but if you haven't been listening lately, please be sure to subscribe. Please be sure to, you know, share it with your friends. We've had a load of great guests over the last couple of months. Uh, we've really just been, like, you know, pounding out the episodes and we've got a special guest because of that. But first of all, I want to introduce my uh, wonderful guests themselves. First of all, Johnny from, I'm guessing, somewhere in Dublin, Jason Walsh. Hello, Emmett. And uh, Ro- Jason, of course, writes with Connection, and another Connected writer, also joining me, I know, from somewhere in Dublin, Roisin Kybert. Hello, back from Berlin as of yesterday. We recorded this on the 18th of December, just for anybody wondering what the current uh, rules are when you're listening to this, and we are observing them all because, well, we'd get in trouble if we didn't because we're journalists. But of course... A couple of weeks ago, I made the promise of the promise of the promises, and that was that I'd be joined on this show, that you would hear the voice of our producer, Jack O'Kennedy. Now, I don't look like Jack O'Kennedy. I don't dress like Jack O'Kennedy. I don't even sound like Jack O'Kennedy. But he sounds like Jack O'Kennedy. Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Wow, that that was really, you know, enthusiasm distilled. In fairness, it was sort of shocked on him that he was going to be on the show as a talking voice rather than just making sure I don't sound stupid. So, uh, you know, but he, he's, he's, you know, bought in, he's agreed. So we're going to be going through topics that each of the four of us have decided are the big tech stories or the big tech areas to discuss this year. And we're going to begin with Jason, because uh, Jason, I suppose, if it was to narrow it down to two words, uh, definitely we're in the nerdier section to begin with. Big iron. So quantum computing, supercomputers and all that. What has been getting you excited about this stuff this year, man? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Big Iron being uh, the, the, the sort of nickname for these kinds of machines, not the country song about shooting people. A very important distinction, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been interested in this uh, subject for a long time because I think we don't talk about it enough. But this year, some quite interesting developments have happened. And one just came in yesterday that I checked the Irish Centre for High-End Computing is working with Atos to develop a quantum simulator. So that'll be coming online soon. But generally speaking, the reason I wanted to talk about it is I've had two outings this year in Connected uh, talking about this. And when we write for Connected, we, you know, we tend to think of computing and IT as being the same thing, but they're not. And the big iron side is very much more on computing than IT. So IT is, is kind of a very much more everyday uh, thing that we do with computers. The majority of activity done on computers by humans is not computing, but there is some amazing work going on in the supercomputing field, and particularly now with quantum, which is a, a, a very novel technology. Some argue it doesn't even truly exist yet, but there are interesting companies, D-Wave, IBM, Google. Uh, a lot of people think that quantum computing is going to be the future of very high-end computing. Some people even think it's going to be you know, within 10 years, the, 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 the future of the kind of computer that you have in front of you or in your pocket, other people disagree on that. Um, what's interesting to me is that how much of this is actually going on in Ireland. Traditionally, uh, high, high-end and high-powered computing has been in industries like oil and gas, military and defense space, these kinds of very sort of exclusive uh, uh, sectors doing complicated calculations like uh, fluid dynamics and uh, transport management, the kind of stuff that you don't think of in Ireland, but actually we have a surprisingly strong research sector. Now, Jason, you described that in only the way a man who is a doctor of philosophy can, but I've got to bring it a bit back here because I know for a lot of our listeners, while they are, of course, all avid readers of Connected to the Magazine, quantum computing is still sort of, what on earth is this? So in a question I ask most of the guests on this show, don't explain to me, although you pretty much will be in this case, explain to my 86-year-old technophobic dad what quantum computing actually is. 
Yeah, well, this is going to be tricky because I'm not sure I fully understand it, but we'll give it a go. So computers, as we understand them, are fundamentally adding machines. That's what they do. No matter what you're doing on a computer, it's simply adding numbers together. It, when it wants to subtract, it doesn't even subtract. It adds negative numbers together. When it wants to multiply, it adds many, many numbers together. It's doing this because computers work on binary, which is zeros and ones, as you know, two states, on and off. All computer calculations at the most fundamental level, down at the hardware, all they know is that something is on or it's off. And that's usually an electrical pulse. And that's what gives you the zeros and ones. We build above that with higher level languages and then above that with operating systems and eventually your application so that it's kind of got a human interface. But quantum computing has what's called a superposition between the zero and the one. So a bit can be in an indeterminate state in between on and off, which if you think about it, if all of computing power comes down to something being a zero or a one, and we have got as far as we have, suddenly if we have almost an infinite number of other states that can be accessed, we could be radically increasing the power of computation. Now, I know that's not as simple as we would have liked it to be, but it's a very complicated subject. Roshin, I can see this like big smile on your face. You look, want to jump in there, possibly ask Jason something, I think. I mean, there are so many things I could ask about this. I think I mentioned in emails before we were doing this show that my main knowledge of supercomputers comes from watching the TV series Devs. Um, <laughs> why is it that when people talk about this, they jump straight to the uh, metaphysical possibilities? Like, what are the real applications of this technology? Yeah, well, that's, I probably jumped to the metaphysical applications because of, as Emmett lightly mocked me, my own background. But the real implications of it are that it will or it has the potential. This is a technology that isn't quite out there, by the way. It could fail. Other technologies have failed in the past. AI failed for decades before getting to now where we are, which is a kind of point of success. So um, no one's quite sure. So in, the, in that sense, it's kind of quite interesting. But some of the applications that it could be used for are sound quite boring but, and you know, everyday, but are quite important. Things like traffic management have been very difficult to model on computers because if you think about every individual moving around on foot in a car, on a motorcycle, on a bicycle, it's very hard. You, suddenly, you know, you have, is this person going to turn left? Are they going to turn right? Do they stop at the lights? This can cause, it's all these simple human actions, when you're trying to model it or when you're trying to analyze it, you get an enormous cascade effect that can, that can, that can go on and on and, and, and overpower the computers so that you can't actually do anything akin to a live simulation of what's going on. If we were able to use quantum computing in an application like that. And there have been tests. Uh, D-Wave have done some tests in Shanghai. I think Google have done some as well. Uh, you can get a better model of traffic flow, both human traffic and machine traffic. And then we can start to optimize how we actually run our cities. That's just one sort of fairly everyday application. Now, Jason, given my general love of dystopian fiction, I've got to ask, should we be afraid? Well, I think we should always be afraid of computers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid of AI. I'm afraid of the AI that we have at the minute because I'm afraid it will damage jobs. I'm afraid of what's now called artificial general intelligence, which is what we used to call AI, which doesn't exist. I'm afraid of it ever existing because I think it's a terrible idea. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are there are kind of moral and ethical implications to any great leap forward that we make in, with any technology, and I don't think that's any different here. Um, 
you know, I don't think we're in any immediate danger. I don't think a quantum computer is going to leap to life as, a, as an artificial intelligence and take over. But yeah, I think we need to need to take these things quite seriously. Well, speaking of our own artificial intelligence capable of taking over, Jack, anything jumping out to you from what Jason's talking about that has you intrigued? Has your interest peaked? I guess just to try and future-proof my job, <laughs> just to just make sure I'm in an industry that an AI can't, can't cover, which I'm not really sure what that list includes these days. So I might talk to you afterwards, Jason, about what my best course actually is on that front going forward well well our our second big topic is one that i suppose had to become big this year which was uh, an increased interest in gaming because we of course had the console wars taking their next step in the new generation the ps5 and the xbox we also had more people playing games because well we were at home a bit more and animal crossing was quite a thing roshin this is the one you wanted to bring up so tell us a bit about why gaming has been your big area of interest in 2020 it's a relatively less academic one to talk about, <laughs> but I got to, on this subject, I, or over the summer, I got to produce an article with probably my favourite title of anything I've written lately, which was for Connected, Where the Mild Things Are, on Animal ah, Crossing yes. and the Pandemic. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, um, I mean, it's just been a record year for video games, really, hasn't it? And I saw the, the two kind of, I don't know, I wrote down some statistics here that the industry is going to be worth roughly $159 billion by the end of the year. That's an estimate, but it's... That's, that's a lot of money. That's it's a, a hell of, of a lot of money. And uh, subjects like, like, well, companies like Twitch went up by, I think it's 80%. Facebook gaming went up by 72%. And the official number, this one's a bit vague though to me, 3.5 billion people are considered gamers worldwide in 2020. And I'm like, what's a gamer? I mean, technically. Yeah, I, I would definitely ask that one because even just thinking within my own apartment, because my flatmate would definitely play a lot more computer games than me. Uh, but like at the same time, I'm regularly, you know, rocking out Fortnite on my phone, playing a bit of FIFA on my Xbox. But it's not one where it's kind of go, going, oh, yeah, I do it for the big thing, which is the interaction like with other people. With FIFA, I don't play against other players because I don't want to be made a fool of. Uh, you know, I'd rather play the computer and just do it that way and Fortnite, well the joy of it is it's almost entirely anonymous if you want it to be and so that comes out to me but it was animal crossing is one that was a huge hit why why did it do so well um i think it was a coincidence it was like a coinciding of all these different factors that can't like contributed to its success it was timing because it came out right as lockdown began and then all the nintendo switches sold out like everywhere but i think it was also to do with two specific qualities of the game. One is the social features and the other is that it's just comforting. It's a life simulator, which, um, I mean, that in itself has this really interesting um, kind of field of theory attached to it. And for that piece where the mild things are, I got to interview a friend of mine called Alfie Bowen, who's an academic, and he, he actually writes about mainly psychoanalysis and video games. And he specifically is really interested in I guess kind of the politics of distraction, he calls it. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, life simulators and just this kind of area of gaming where they simulate having a job. You know, in Animal Crossing, it's farming, it's paying back your debt to this uh, animal landlord who demands it of you. The infamous Tom Nook. Tom Nook, yeah, the, the arch capitalist. Or is he uh, Tom Nook? <laughs> no one can quite make out who, what his agenda is. And yeah, so because this is, a, he was like a huge source of memes, this character, like, you know, because, you know, often quite a lot of sort of, you know, leftist memes, but also just other random memes as well. Like, it was really sort of across the meme board, so to speak, in terms of, generally speaking, he's the nearest thing there is to a villain in the game from what it can work out. But even then, is he really a villain? Yeah, I love that the most menacing of the, the tools that you can have in Animal Crossing is a fishing net. 
And when, uh, when Joshua Wong and Demma Sisto, they did these protests for Hong Kong inside Animal Crossing, they, had to, they got pictures of, uh, oh, I've forgotten her name, but she's the governor of Hong Kong. And they attacked the pictures with fishing nets, <laughs> like all these little cutesy animals. And this was this like extremely dangerous protest, you know? Um, <laughs> and then PETA, of course, uh, published their guide to Animal Crossing, which advised not fishing. Of course, Jack, You've been looking bamboozled, but befuddled by this. Uh, did you give Animal Crossing a go, or what type of gaming were you into, man? Uh, it's yeah, no, it's funny. Like, I can totally buy this this whole massive surge in that. In that, like, I've had I've got housemates who I'd never pre-pandemic seen pick up a controller in their entire lives, and then within a month or two of lockdown happening, we were gaming together on a make you know three or four times a week and it's just like i can totally understand now how there's a kind of a type of person who was maybe on the fringe of being a gamer and this, this kind of gave them the push now i never i never experimented with animal with uh with animal crossing i've been playing a lot of uh tricky towers it's like tetris on uh, um but you know slightly more insane so that that's been my go-to but yeah you bring up a good point because even i think about sort of the what is a gamer thing that roshin brought up and so my xbox for the last couple of years had basically been a glorified blu-ray player like that's all i was using it for i hadn't been plugging in any games or anything like that and lockdown hidden it's kind of going well you know i need i need more distractions i uh, feel the same because i i write about games and like the and i read a lot about games and the things that you see showing up in the news are all these big console games like today it's cyberpunk uh oh, what's yeah. it? cyberpunk 2077 is that the yeah. um and the glitches and it's been recalled and all this but like i only play indie games i i just play games on my macbook so for the last week or two germany i was back in berlin i've just come back but it went into a kind of partial lockdown and the steam sale coincided with this so i went a bit mad and i got like four or five games including do you know this game cuphead i don't it's animated like 1920s 30s disney cartoons and it's just all boss fights all righty wow jason I i've got to bring you in on this so you've been hearing these various philosophical discussions around gaming what's your own take on what you've been hearing it's actually really interesting to me. Um, I am very curious about this. I used to play a lot of games when I was younger. I don't anymore. One of the reasons I stopped was I found that um, I got, after four or five hours, and it's quite easy to drop four or five hours into a lot of games, um, I found myself, and I use the term quite loosely, depressed. So I, I'm curious as to why that is and you know what, what it says about me. Uh, but the, the whole life simulator sort of seems to tie into that. I, I, I forget the name, but there's a very famous online um, space sort of shooting and uh, uh, trading game. He's online. Yeah, I wonder why people want to simulate their own lives when you already have your own <laughs> life. I mean, you know, I'm not being, I'm not, I, I'm not criticizing. I just find it's genuinely fascinating and curious. What I would like to ask Roisin though is, uh, you mentioned the Switch a couple of times. We've been waiting for the death, not only of Nintendo, but also of consoles for what, 15 years? now and it never happens why do you think these platforms continue to be you know hugely successful despite being technically outclassed i know something i find very interesting is and it kind of falls within that question of what is a gamer a lot of the people kind of behind the boom especially this year in things like esports they're not all ex they're not all really young like a lot of the gamers are older they're people who they're playing out of nostalgia more than anything else. And I mean, it's an obvious question, it's an obvious response, but like with Nintendo, I think they've done a really good job of basically harnessing the nostalgia value, but also offering something new. Like with Pokemon Go as well, that was that was Nintendo, wasn't it? Nanko, so yeah, it was Nintendo yeah. and Google together. That was a, a real exercise in the kind of fuzzy nostalgia coupled with 
surveillance capitalism <laughs> essentially <laughs> and that demonstrated that people were really happy to buy into that you know and i think animal crossing does something very similar that's a franchise that's been around a really long time you know and then it becomes a meme and then it recruits new people i think it also um beyond it just being fuzzy and comforting and just utterly benign it also offers the chance to own a home it like mimics it, it offers you these really wholesome kind of practices and values which a lot of us because of economic reasons like won't ever actually get to do that is the most accurate and terrifying thing i've ever heard in my life yeah that that last part of the, the chance to own a home it's like yeah i'm 39 i have what's considered to be a good job the idea of being capable of owning a home is laughable to me uh, so it's like that's never happening well obviously when i when i when i marry a rich heiress you know it'll all be fine uh, the plan's still working out in that respect but i suppose one thing that sort of you both got me thinking of there is i've been noticing this sort of you know big bigger interest than usual in nostalgia gaming and not just people who would be from that era. So like, it'd be logical, say, for someone like myself or Jason's age to want to have a go at Mega Drive or SNES games again. But I'm seeing people who are like five, ten years younger than me digging out consoles from literally when I was born, like your Atari 2600s and stuff, like looking for ways to adapt them to TVs. Is this, is this sort of, you know, I, I don't know, like what sort of, you know, is driving that, do you reckon, Roshi? I don't know. I find that really fascinating. Like when you mentioned that, I instantly think of, um, I'm very interested in vaporwave, like the music and art on the internet. And that to me is very much about uh, reinforcing the sense of the internet as a history. So like, once you kind of think of yourself as native to the internet, that like you've grown up online, then you start to think of it as its own, as a history. And you start to kind of, things that aren't even very old become vintage, like old Microsoft or, you know, Apple graphics, or like you see a lot of, um, if you go into those communities, you know, they sort of fetishize like the old um, Apple line of clothing and stuff. So like it's kind of old tech, again, nostalgia for a time that they never actually lived through really or weren't old enough to remember um, but in terms of games you know it might also be a reaction to the franchising of everything like somewhat I, I elsewhere i wrote a really big essay this year about the game doom and i interviewed john romero for it which i was really happy to do but uh, they've had i think it's 18 doom games like that's the og that's the original first person shooter absolutely and it's yeah. still going and people are still doing these um like conventions you know to, to have death matches it's never going away. It's, it's really interesting because it's kind of reinforcing the power of this industry because now it has its own history and people are taking it upon themselves to learn that history. It, you could also say that we're just trapped in repeating and it's like that whole hauntology thing, like we haven't produced anything new and that's a failing. I was going to say, isn't it interesting now? I mean, I think the video game industry, you mentioned some figures at the start and it's been bigger than movies for, I don't know how long now, over a decade. Um, yeah. And yet the, the big franchises and the big players, I think, did EA just swallow another uh, developer? Yeah, Codemasters. Yeah, so it's a very... Um, you know, even more centralized industry than the movie industry or the music industry ever was. And it takes fewer and fewer risks at that very high end. And you, you, you yourself said you only play indie games, presumably because you think they're, they're, they're taking more risks and produce better results. Maybe people are, are looking at old games the same way cinema buffs would look at old movies. I mean, I, I, I watch a lot of films and I find it very easy to go back as far as the 40s and watch films. Once you get back into the 30s and 20s, it's quite difficult to watch them. And I'm not even talking about silent movies um you know because the aesthetic hadn't settled and they, they feel very primitive to me um I, although there are good ones like scarlet street i imagine the same thing's true emmett mentioned the atari 2600 i can totally see people going, who weren't born easily going back to the mega drive and snes 
or even to the master system and NES or the 8-bit computers. But going back to the 2600, that's really going back to the Stone Age. But maybe it is a reaction to um, this kind of highly acquisitive and risk-averse uh, industry. Jack, you wanted to get in there. I was just, yeah, just on the topic of kind of, kind of these kind of cycles happening because we, I guess like for consoles anyway, as far as I'm, you know, like, to my limited knowledge, kind of the, the platform where it kind of died away for a while. But then was it Naughty Dog kind of published a remastering of the Crash Bandicoot trilogy there a couple of years ago and that sold like hotcakes. And then they, and then this year they released a brand new Crash game and like no one really had been, making platformers for consoles that were new again. So yeah, it's just this endless cycle. But people just love the nostalgia of going back and this is the thing I grew up with. Because I grew up playing Crash Bandicoot. That's the first game I owned for the for the PlayStation back in the day. And then to... Well, that makes me feel old. <laughs> 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 uh, but yes, like I've been playing a lot of, a lot of uh, kind of just remastered versions of those games, like Crash Bandicoot and then Crash Team Racing. I've been playing a lot of that as well. So I'm definitely on that kind of going back to the old cycles vibe it's uh, it's it's very very satisfying to kind of get a new skin on, on a game that you feel familiar with well sort of and i knew me so i think we're going to finish off the gaming section with of course one of the big gaming wars of this year and it wasn't the console war it was uh, epic games against apple because i don't know if all of you saw what epic did as part of its battle with apple over the amount it's being charged by the app store basically to be able to operate there and they've essentially left it in many respects they decided to do a parody of apple's famous 1984 ad which was having a go back in the day at ibm and it was straight up just using fortnite characters but like you know doing the same parody of the 1984 moment from i think it's from the two minute hate is what it's actually you know parodying within the movie itself well book but it's, you know, it's, it was sort of inspired by the movie of the uh, that was actually brought out that year more than the book i would argue uh, but now we're going into real semantics but anywho this of course is interesting because the vast, vast, vast majority of Fortnite players would not have been alive when 1984, the, uh, the, 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 the ad came out. They obviously weren't alive when the book came out, uh, but the, when the ad came out, because it was in 1984 for the Super Bowl. So you're sort of seeing this thing where Roisin, like sort of, you know, what was once the young plucky upstart, although it's kind of hilarious for any listener to think that Apple was once a young plucky upstart, is now sort of be having its own uh, views served back on it, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's really fascinating that way. And I mean, even like the people who are making Fortnite, you know, they're probably corporate by gaming standards still. Oh yes, but were uh, were that uh, was that before or after they did the Travis Scott gig? Oh, it was after so that saying- to me like they were high on the victory of that. I feel because like that was so fascinating. That was almost like a big statement from the gaming industry. Like we are the last proper kind of stable entertainment industry standing, and we will come and eat up like music and events and and maybe even cinema too. Who knows? You know what are they going to take on next? Because they're just these worlds. For those who don't know the Travis Scott gig, I actually watched it when it was on, a 15-minute uh, virtual gig by this rapper. But they had ones, you know, which were smaller, which was just the person in real life uh, in a soundstage or whatever. This was entirely animated, very trippy, very interactive, out there is how I'd best describe it type uh, thing. And it was like, you know, sort of Fortnite showing, we can do this, yo. And it was like quite a message to sort of other parts of the entertainment industry, which neatly segues us into Jacko Kennedy's topic, which is where we're looking at with streaming and, of course, the Warner HBO Max announcement from uh, only a few days ago, really, about a week ago, I think, at the time of recording. Jack, we are looking at some uh, some bizarre stuff with the streaming stuff the world this year, obviously. We're recording it today. The last episode of The Mandalorian for this season came out, so there will be no spoilers in this, although if you haven't watched it by the time this comes out, it's your own fault. Jack, go on. 
Well, so I guess yeah. in kind of much the same way where Roshin was talking about how we're kind of get, you know getting people who hadn't been gaming before in in lockdown conditions and now gaming. I think now we're getting people who just finally had never kind of made the jump to a streaming platform have have made the jump, and we and we've seen that in the massive increase just in subscribers. For I think I think Netflix now has around 195 million subscribers. Disney Plus launched you know is still is still very young, but it's 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 knocking around 85 million subscribers. And I guess the interesting thing about this for me is that everyone loves to kind of talk about how you know every time there's a new technological innovation people always say oh this is the death of the silver screen experience so when television happens say oh tv's screwed when vhs dvds came around tv screwed and then obviously i you know we're 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 a good few years into the kind of streaming phenomenon now and and cinema is still held strong like i think like i was checking the figures now and like you know 42.5 billion global box office last year like like the best year it's ever had so like, until march of this year the industry as far as regular kind of old school going in getting your popcorn watching a film is still very very strong but now obviously we have with the pandemic we have a very different scenario where cinemas have been closed for long periods of time when they when they've reopened they've been at half capacity in many cases which we all know it's a numbers game they need to get as many bums on seats there as possible and operating on half screens like, i worked in the cinema for a very long time you know throughout my college years and like they get they get a small percentage of the ticket sales all their money comes from you know concessions for the most part and when you have half half the audience you're just it's you know your margins are, just aren't there anymore so basically what's happened is the revenue for cinemas this year is projected to be down over 70 percent which is catastrophic for the industry so you have um cineworld which is probably one of i think it's the second largest chain of cinemas across the uk and the us they've got about 600 600 odd screens across the uk and the us and they basically have had to get about 700 million odds in cash for financial support to try and survive until spring of next year and that's presuming that any films are actually coming out. This is the other problem they're having. So many major releases this year, the studios have gone, oh God, what's happening? And they've pushed films and pushed films and pushed films. So even when they are open, they've got nothing new to show people. So you have the likes of Marvel's Black Widow or MGM's new Bond film. They've moved and moved and moved. Now they're not coming out until next year. And I guess the kind of the kind of concern people have is that when these films actually start coming back to cinemas, what cinemas are going to be left to show them? And then this has all been kind of compounded by this news that you mentioned from early December, where uh, Warner Bros. basically said, we're putting our entire 2021 slate at 17 films, some big ones on there. You got Dune, you got Matrix 4, and then one I know that you're very excited for, Amish, the new Space Jam film is on that list as well. Indeed I am, yeah. But um, they are basically, they've decided to release those in cinema in the US anyway, they decided to release those in cinemas and on HBO Max on the same date, which is a huge kind of crossing kind of the Rubicon moment for this because like the, the, the whole tension between cinemas and streaming services has been this this window between we get this it's it's typically been 70 to 90 days and this has been a really contentious issue between the cinemas and the streamers of like how long or how short that window can be and that's been decimated now like like the precedent that this sets is going to be so interesting to see what other studios decide that 2021 is not a viable year for our big properties we're not going to be able to get any billion dollar films um out of next year so and also the interesting thing about this was that it was kind of sprung on 
everyone, like a lot of the filmmakers and even some of the financiers, like Legendary is a, is a studio that had major financial investments in some of the films that are now going straight to HBO Max as well, cinemas. And they weren't really kept in the loop. And you had the likes of Christopher Nolan, obviously well-known director, and then um, Canadian director, Eden Evil Nove, who's directing the Dune film that's coming out, who've been very critical of this whole process. But um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a major turning point for the industry because uh, Warner Bros. Have basically, have basically described it as a unique one-year plan, that they're, oh, it's grand, by 2020-22, we'll be back to normal, it'll be grand, but like, the, the cinemas are going, yes, but we're going to be dead by then. Like, we're not going to be left standing. That is interesting. Uh, because you're making me think of uh, something I got from one of my interviews for one of my end of year pieces. It was with uh, Daniel Gleason of Omdia and uh, their analysts. And he was saying that basically them and most of their analysts are saying cinema won't rebound in 2021, but they reckon it will in 2022. But of course, you're saying that the cinemas won't be there. Well, that's that's the fear. Like, like, like so, you know, like obviously all the major cities, the, 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 it's not going to be a problem. They're always going to sustain. But it, I guess it's like, particularly in the US where you constantly hear stories of people having to, oh, I had to drive two hours to see this particular film. Those smaller ones on the bubble, they're not going to survive this. So you're going to have these kind of smaller, kind of smaller screens just closing down. And I, I think what's interesting about this as well is that kind of tennis, the Chris Nolan film that came out in August was kind of like, there's been a narrative created around it because basically like kind of the, the rumor was though, I don't think, I don't know if this is true, that like, Chris Nolan's long been a proponent of you have to see the film in the cinema. So like there was talk that oh, he was yeah. really pushing for this to be in cinemas, not go to not go to streaming services. So Tenet comes out, it gets delayed a couple of times, and it, it just says grand, we're, we're going to go for it. And it comes out in late August. This film, two hundred million plus budget. So you know it's the usual it's the usual sum of really due to the famous Hollywood accounting, most films need to make two and a half times their budget to actually break even when you factor in marketing and all that kind of stuff. And tennis, which would pre-pandemic would have been projected would have been projected to make roughly one billion dollars for Warner Brothers, is currently sitting around three hundred and sixty. And basically that happened and everybody ran scared. They're like, oh my God, like this is this has been one of the biggest films of the year. They haven't even gotten a third of what they thought they'd get. And there's, there's now this kind of narrative that I'm not sure how much I buy into, but there's this narrative that, oh, Chris Nolan was trying to save cinema by pushing this and now he's actually doomed it for this. I'm not sure that's fair on Chris Nolan, but it's certainly a kind of a narrative that's kind of circling around the internet. And yeah, so I'm just, I think, I think, I think there's a lot of concern like genuine concern, like rather than kind of all the fake panics we have about cinema, you know, being in danger, which it's always persevered. I think you're going to have some casualties here. Now, it, as you say, it will come back, but not necessarily the ones that were there before. I want to bring in Jason and Roshan on this here. So Jason, is are we all just going to watch it all on our tellies now? Or are we going to, our projectors finally going to take off or what? You know, something I have a horrible feeling we might. Um, yeah, as soon as lockdown ended, I went to the cinema. The only film that was showing was a, 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 an animated children's feature based on a famous French bande dessinée called Petit Vampire. I went to see it. It was very good. Um, I don't know if it's going to come out in English, but it's very entertaining. I love the cinema. I would love to see the cinema industry decimated in a sense, because much like video games, as I was speaking about earlier, I think it's become overly risk averse because too much money is going into the films. However, if cinemas and cinema chains are destroyed, that's the infrastructure that people like me require to watch the films that we want to watch. I don't have a streaming service. I had Netflix temporarily, but I got rid of it. I don't like series. I find the storytelling flabby and irritating. I don't, I find, I, I don't like the way they're structured. Uh, I don't enjoy binge watching. 
I could go on about this, but I won't. You know, but I am minded of something. In 1996, Nicholas Negroponte, who was a professor at MIT, he founded the Media Lab, and he was a wired columnist, kind of early digital guy, wrote a book called Being Digital. And in it, he made a lot of predictions about the future. It's a fascinating historical document because most of them came true, which is something you can't say for a lot of people writing about the future of tech. One that he got wrong was he said cinema will die because there's no point in going to a room to sit with other people and watch a recorded event. Very clear distinction between cinema and theater in that way. Turns out maybe he, it's looking like he was right. It just took this kind of seismic or cataclysmic uh, event to, to cause it to happen. But I think culturally we would be a lot worse off without the cinema experience. Roshin, your own thoughts. Yeah, I'm, I would be inclined to agree. Something that I found really delightful uh, when I first moved to Berlin was that for, maybe it's just where I was living or who I was hanging out with, but the default cinema there is not a chain. It's a small, tiny cinema with tiny little rooms and a bar and cheap drink. And it's a fun night out. And they're often, like the one that we go to, it's called Beware Laden Kino in, in Friedrichshain. And it's also a film library. I mean, I don't know who has DVD players even. I, I've not had one for a long time. But like people go and rent films from these from there and they go just to drink and to have coffee during the day. And when you go to a film there, there are no ads. And it's, it's usually, they show a kind of mixture of newer films and old cult films and midnight screenings of like really bad stuff and it's uh, an entirely different experience uh, but it really reinforces the sense of the cinema as like not just going to see the latest film but a night out you know a, a fun place to spend a night and I really would believe yeah they will bounce back because people are just going to crave experiences again that was this big economic trend wasn't it that like millennials and younger were investing less in things like furniture and more in one-off experiences <laughs> surely we're going to crave that even more when you know the the vaccine is distributed and all that. Uh, another, uh, another one more small point. Who agrees with me that, uh, well, Tenet, I didn't think Tenet was that bad. I thought it was good. I enjoyed it. I think it ripped off Primer. I see. I have never actually watched Primer, which I know is a disgrace for me as a, as a self-described nerd. But uh, I am reliably informed that saying ripped off Primer is a fair statement to make. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm going to go with Roshin that. But one thing I will say, because I think Roshin touched on it much better than I was going to, which is, is that experience part, the night out, like, you know, more bluntly, is a huge part of going to the cinema or even the afternoon out if you're inclined to go into a dark room while it's still bright, which always messes up my head, I can assure you. But... That's the part that is hard to replace, because if you think about the lowest point for cinema, it was pretty much the 80s, where what we would consider to be hits in the 80s are hilarious, even when you account for the inflation factor, in terms of how badly they actually do compared to the successful films of today. And that's basically because of the VHS uh, boom in Europe more than anywhere else. And as a result, you know, we saw an awful lot of cinemas closed down, uh, across Ireland in particular, like, and I, whereas it had been a very dominant force in, in, uh, as, as entertainment in the island. And of course, we saw that then an awful lot more of them come back. And a lot of that was because cinema sort of rebuilt itself as a night out rather than just where you go to watch the movie, which... I, well, objectively speaking, are the same thing. It was two different things it was selling, essentially. And so, yes, yeah, so I'm a little bit more confident. I, 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 do, I do think 2021 is going to be tough, but like Roshin's right, I'm going to get to do lots of stuff once we're allowed to. Like, you know, obviously I'm behaving myself like a good man right now and growing my beard out to observe the times we live in. But also in the times we live in, we've been doing some stuff as a species this year, which have thankfully been relatively pandemic-free because they've been nowhere near our planet. One of which was, I suppose, the biggest news in space this year uh, was Venus, where we thought we discovered aliens. 
Now we're not so sure because we're walking back a bit because we're not sure about the levels of phosphine, the, the chemical detected in the atmosphere of Venus. But yeah, this was sort of, you know, this mind-blowing moment where some very quiet shy nerds, uh, mostly in the UK, had worked out that, oh right, there's a good chance there's microbial life forms in the atmosphere of Venus. It was as beautifully described by a friend of mine, Jennifer Walsh, regular listener of the show, where she texts me, are aliens real? Uh, and I go... Well, sort of. Really tiny aliens. But aliens are real. Yes, aliens are real. Now we're not so sure because in November they had to walk back a little and they got to do more research because that's what good scientists do. They don't just stick to their guns foolishly. They reassess the data. But Roshi, you, know, you have to be the first person to go to this. Aliens, are they real? I'm watching the skies. You're watching the skies. Yeah, I'm uh, holding out hope. But like, yeah, so for, for you though, like, w w do you recall this story from uh, early in the autumn when it was sort of announced? Yeah. Exactly. It was, like, it was kind of mind-blowing, really, wasn't it, at the time, that it'd be that close to us that we might potentially have found, admittedly not intelligent life, but, like, you know, yeah, life is life. Yeah. This year I got very into um, squids, which, you know, <laughs> there's that, that kind of theory that the squids are actually, well, the octopuses actually are, are aliens. It's more just that, like, if you go genetically back, like, they're the furthest back branching off. So some people have theorized that they came from space, which would be great. I even I, I even have a squid print COVID mask that I, I wear out and about. It's, but sorry, off, off topic, but... On this show, never. Uh, Jason, you obviously spotted the Opus reference in what I said there. Do go on. Yeah, yeah, no, I, was just, <laughs> I was just going to say life is life as Opus and Leibach later said. Um, yeah, um, I don't know, do aliens exist? Probably not. Statistically, they probably should, I suppose, if you're going to be mathematical about it, but I'm not sure the universe works that way. All I know about octopuses is it's bad form to eat them, which is a pity because they're quite tasty, but apparently they're quite intelligent. So it's yeah, rather they can remember faces and hold grudges. Yeah. I would hold grudges against anybody who tried to chop me up and put me in the well. <laughs> yeah, that, that's reasonable. Uh, Jack, your thoughts on uh, the potential for alien life? Yeah, I, I don't think I'd be so arrogant as to presume that we're the only people. Um, knocking around this place so yeah i i'd like to think that you know we're not alone basically in the more substantial i suppose space stories from this year's ones that actually have been confirmed is uh, a little probe was sent up into the stars managed to do a high five with an asteroid and some space dust is being brought back to earth i suppose like that's kind of like when you think about sort of you know how far away some of this stuff is but also the ridiculous speeds we're talking about like this isn't exactly like someone bombing down the m50 these are crazy speeds you gotta coincide with it's kind of mind-blowing sort of that you know yeah some space dust is now traveling you know cross space in a container on the way back to Earth, Jack, isn't it? No, it is. Very, very much so. Well, you know, I think that's a fair enough response because, you know, you know that sense of wonder and enjoyment that you had as a child about anything, you know? Um, one of the few ways I can recreate that now in my adult mind is to stare up at the stars and realize that that light was thousands or tens of thousands or millions of years ago and the stars might not even exist. So I think a bit of wonder about space is pretty fair. Uh, and, and Roisin, if you could talk to an asteroid, what would you say to it? Or are we talking about, like, Venusians or... Just a benign just a benign asteroid, what would you say to it? You know what? Um I only discovered, I mean maybe everyone knew this years before me, but this year Elon Musk put like sixty asteroids per month into the orbit of the Earth. Satellites mean. Like from now on, basically you don't know if you're looking at a star or not. You're probably just looking at you like Elon Musk's things. Orbiting yeah, the Earth. It's like a pure Mr. Burns like level ambition and madness. Like he's creating an entire mesh 
around the earth of satellites and they're going to bring internet to people so i guess that's not bad but i i just remember hearing that it's apparently it's meant to be pronounced elon but he doesn't correct people on it uh oh with... i have that problem i can relate Uh, it's like, you know, so, but uh, speaking of Musk, sort of our last big space thing was, he, of course, tried to land a spaceship, didn't quite work out, but it actually, well, it really didn't work out, but in fairness, in, in terms of, it, it, as, if you're being a pure scientist, an awful lot did actually go right in that. But the part that jumped out to me wasn't the key parts of discovery, it wasn't the failure of the final landing, it was, if you look up the, the rockets in question, that from, from Musk's failed SpaceX well, quasi-failed SpaceX mission. It looks awfully like an old washing-up liquid bottle. Did any of you pick up on this at all? I, I think Jason's probably the right generation here to be talking to on this one. He's like... Yeah, I, I, I hadn't noticed it, but now I'm just, all I can think about is Mr. Spoon. And, and the thing is, part of me is wondering, because in our projects, well, by our projects, I mean the stuff your teacher did when they just try, in primary school when they were trying to just basically make you do nothing. It's like, yeah, yeah, they're going to have another... Uh, washing up liquid bottle oh and it's a spaceship again like those are your standard thing you can do with a space thing stick a couple of flaps on it and there there you go it's a, it's a spaceship jack you know you're a man who's had to deal with my level of imagination for a while do you reckon that might have been where elon musk got the idea to design it like a washing up liquid bottle yeah i think what happened was he was on holidays in in ireland about 20 years ago and he saw that fairy that fairy liquid ad with the kid making the making this baby you know where he's where he's waiting for his for his mum to finish with the fairy liquid he's waiting for ages and ages because it'll last so long and he saw that and goes yeah that's the best shape let's do that that's definitely what happened i agree roshin what would you reckon is the best shape for a spaceship mysterious glowing orb solid solid and reliable very reliable as well first tile ovular <laughs> It doesn't matter. There's no, there's no right shape for them because they're in space. Who cares? I mean, I'm assuming we don't have to. We can build them out there. We don't have to launch them in and out of atmospheres. It's kind of like the Star Trek thing that always annoyed me. The ships are always facing each other. There's never one upside down or something. You know. There is a bit in Top Gun actually where Tom Cruise uh, and Goose like go sort of at the start of Top Gun. If you watch that, they fly their jet and it's go, they go upside down over one of the uh, other jets just so they can like you know take a Polaroid of it of, its, of it and uh, flip at the bird. Which I was like, kind of going, yep, yep, that's that's totally plausible and in no way ridiculous. But uh, the reason I've been going with Roshin with these uh, crazier questions, the last couple of ones, is because we will be talking to her about a property in the new year. But Roshin's got a book coming out and it's all a bit wacky and weird as well, which is why I've been going wacky and weird with you. So Roshin, it's come time to plug your pluggables so tell us a bit about the book only in brief because we want to have a big show about that but and also where people can find out more about you it sadly contains no proof of alien life yes but um i hope that one day aliens will read it it's out next march i think the official date is going to be march 11th and there may even be a covid safe launch we're working on it right now in dublin um if not there will be a deranged zoom performance art launch but it's called the disconnect and it's getting published by serpent's tale and it's a collection of essays that kind of link together into a bigger book about life and technology and if people want to find you on the internet is there anywhere they should go to learn more about roshin kybert i am at roshin kybert on twitter and instagram jason plug your pluggables please i have nothing to plug i am so sorry to tell you i am working on a book but no one will buy it because it's about epistemology and they'll probably only print 40 copies hey listen as someone who's had who's had books which were niche i'm not gonna even top, top, try commenting on that like you know i'm pretty niche when it comes to what i write i would say then look for jason on the pages of connected jack anything you want to plug before we wrap up baby just your podcast Emma. that's all i care about so, so you reckon if they're listening and they liked the show they should subscribe to the connected podcast i'm 
I'm saying they should tell their friends, is what I'm saying. Absolutely. Well, like I said, we've had quite a few uh, episodes this uh, year. We've uh, really been panning out through the pandemic. I want to thank my three guests, Jason Walsh, Roshan Kybert, and producer Jack O'Kennedy, uh, who, of course, I'm also thanking for his role in producing this show. And if you want to keep supporting us, not only should you just subscribe, but when you're checking out this week's episode, this last episode of 2020, we're going to have an extra link in the comments, not in the comments, sorry, in the description, to a recent uh, roundtable held where we discussed the, uh, well... The, how we're making transformation real in the current era so we're going to link that in our description I'll also throw in a link to the original Apple 1984 ad and Fortnite's uh, parody of it just so you can get that reference and of course uh, you know make sure you follow Roisin on the internet and Jason on the road I guess you can best way to get in touch with the podcast as ever is to find me on Twitter Ryan. we are sponsored as ever by Dell Technologies Iron and thanks to them for their continued support and well until 2021 I'll keep being Emmett Ryan. <laughs>